Hello, hello, and hello to all of you Med Talks listeners. A warm welcome back to our finals countdown series, where in this series we're providing all of you wonderful medical students, in other words, the future of our healthcare. Yes, that's right, big responsibility, guys, with short, succinct, and super useful revision talks for all of your upcoming exams and also generally for life beyond as doctors. Now, as you hopefully already know, we're in the endocrinology section of our finals countdown series, and in the previous episode we talked all about type 1 diabetes mellitus. Prior to this section of the series, we did some gastroenterology, and we have about 24 episodes available across podcast platforms for completely free, so do go over and check those out if you haven't already done so. And in the episode about to come, we're going to be talking all about diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a complication, particularly of type 1 diabetes, not so much of type 2. That has a separate complication, which we will discuss in another episode. And often it's how type 1 diabetic patients actually present. They can present in DKA. And having worked on paediatrics myself, I've definitely seen a number of newly diagnosed type 1 diabetic children often presenting in DKA. So sit back, everyone, relax, get your pen and paper or iPads out, make some notes and enjoy the episode. I hope it's useful. Please remember to share it with your friends, peers and anyone else who may find it useful and enjoy. So today I'd like to talk to you all about diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA. DKA is considered a medical emergency which needs rapid intervention and management. It can carry a significant morbidity and mortality risk if it's not urgently treated. So what does DKA mean? Well, you can work out its definition just from the name. So, D is diabetic. In other words, the patient has a high glucose level or hyperglycemia above 11 millimoles per litre, or they're known to have diabetes mellitus. Then there's the K, which is keto. And this is the presence of ketones within the blood, so 3 millimoles per litre or more, or the presence of ketones within the urine, also known as ketonuria. And this is where you get more than two pluses on a standard urine dip. And then there's the A, which is acidosis. So a venous pH of less than 7.3 and or a bicarbonate level below 15 millimoles per litre. Now going back to the diabetic part, It's important to be aware that not all DKA patients present with hyperglycemia. We're now seeing more and more presenting with what's called euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. In other words, their glucose levels are normal. And this is especially being seen in those patients who are on the new SGLT2 inhibitors, such as canaglifosin. DKA can be caused by all sorts of things, ranging from infection to missed insulin doses, which may be intentional or unintentional, or serious health conditions such as a stroke or a myocardial infarction. Drugs can also precipitate DKA, such as steroids and the SGLT2 drugs that we mentioned. Physiological stresses can potentially cause DKA, so things like surgery, pregnancy and trauma. DKA is usually seen in patients with type 1 diabetes, i.e. the complete reliance on insulin due to autoimmune destruction within the pancreas. However, it can also occur in people with type 2 diabetes. So why is DKA so dangerous? Well, it all comes from a lack of insulin within the body. Insufficient insulin means that the body's cells don't take up the glucose and use it for metabolism. 
As a result, the glucose stays in the blood and it wanders over to the kidneys, into the urine, and it drags along sodium and potassium with it via osmotic diuresis. This causes polyuria due to osmosis, which makes the patients very dehydrated as they're peeing out a lot, and it also makes them very thirsty, also called polydipsia. A lack of insulin can cause lipolysis or the breakdown of fat into fatty acids, which gets converted via some wonderful biochemical pathways that you all definitely enjoyed during preclinical years into ketone bodies. So, and examples of ketone bodies are acetoacetate, acetone and beta-hydroxybutyrate. These ketone bodies turn the blood acidic, which causes the metabolic acidosis. And in order to compensate for this acidosis, the body tries to blow off carbon dioxide, which causes the deep respiration that you see in patients with DKA. And this is called Kussmaul's respiration. Okay, so how does DKA present? Patients with DKA will be generally unwell, possibly for a few days. They'll have polyuria and polydipsia for the reasons we've just discussed. They may have vomiting and as a result be very dehydrated because they're losing lots of fluids. They'll be feeling very weak and lethargic. They may have some weight loss and they'll be hyperventilating. To blow off that carbon dioxide as a compensatory mechanism to correct the acidosis. Patients may have a pear drop smell on the breath because of the ketone bodies that they're producing. And if it's very severe, they can present with an altered mental state, so a reduced GCS. Okay, so now you're going to examine the patient and do an A2E assessment. So let's go through it. Firstly, look at the patient's observations. Are they cardiovascularly stable? Are they spiking in temperature, which may support a possible infection? How do they look from the end of the bed? Do they appear dry and dehydrated? Do they have sunken eyes? Do they just generally look unwell? So, now we'll go through the A2E. And by the way, there is a separate episode on how to assess an acutely unwell patient using the A2E method, so do check that one out. So A. The airway is likely to be patent, but if the patient has reduced consciousness, then this can be impaired. B. They're probably hyperventilating. They're tachypneic. They may have acetone-smelling breath. If a pneumonia is the cause of DKA, they may present with signs of consolidation, such as crepitations on auscultation, dullness to percussion, or reduced air entry. C. Circulation. Any signs of cardiac failure? Any murmurs that you can hear? Is the patient hypotensive, tachycardic? Check for their capillary refill time. If they're dehydrated, it's likely to be more than two seconds. They may have cool peripheries with a weak pulse, a reduced JVP. Their mucous membrane, so look at their tongue around the mouth. It may look very dry. And they may also have postural hypotension. D, disability. What's the patient's GCS? Do they have any focal neurological signs? Check their pupils. Are they both equal and reactive to light? And of course, don't ever forget glucose. You need to check their capillary blood glucose by the bedside. E. Exposure and everything else. So do they have any abdominal pain and tenderness? Any signs of rashes, bleeding, any abscesses, any obvious sources of infection? Okay, so you've done your A2E assessment and you've made any necessary acute interventions. You now need to do some Tests. So these are going to be bedside tests, blood tests and imaging. So what bedside tests can you do which can support your diagnosis? 
Well, there's a capillary blood glucose measurement. It's a super quick and easy test to do. Urine dip will show you elevated glucose, so glycosuria and also ketonuria. You should also send this urine sample for cultures and microscopies because a urinary tract infection may be the precipitant of DKA. Measure the ketones, so a capillary blood ketone machine can measure the ketone levels and tell us if there's ketonemia. The blood ketone assays are more sensitive than the urine one. And a bedside 12 lead ECG will be very helpful because it will help you to rule out any cardiac causes. Now you're going to do some proper blood tests. So you're going to send off a plasma glucose level because this is going to give a more accurate indication of the elevated glucose levels. A full blood count may show a raised white blood cell count suggestive of an infection. A raised CRP will also support this. You want to do some blood cultures, sputum cultures if the patient's got productive cough, and any stool cultures if it's indicated. Dehydration is going to cause electrolyte derangements such as a high sodium and it can also alter the potassium levels so you need to watch out for that. Urea and creatinine will be elevated because of pre-renal acute kidney injury which is secondary to dehydration. Do a blood gas so this can be a VBG or an ABG if you're worried about the patient's oxygen levels but it's going to show a metabolic acidosis so a low pH and a low bicarbonate level. If a cardiac cause is suspected, such as a myocardial infarction, then you need to do some troponins, and these will be elevated. If, for example, pancreatitis is the suspect, suspected precipitant, then do an amylase level, and this will be elevated. So those are the blood tests. Now you need to do some imaging. So get the patient a, a chest x-ray if you think that they might have a respiratory infection, and this will assess for any consolidation. Similarly, if you think it's something going on within the abdomen, then get them an abdominal x-ray. If they have any impaired consciousness or any focal neurology, get the patient a CT scan. Now on this topic, we also have a separate episode about the five steps for requesting scans for patients and getting them done in a timely manner. Hey guys, just a quick one. If you, like me, are iPad lovers and spend all of your productive time on your iPads making notes for exams or making notes for anything else, then I cannot recommend enough the paper-like screen protector. The number of times I've scratched my unprotected iPad screen after using different styluses or styli, but since having the paper-like screen protector, it's kept my screen extremely well shielded. Its nanodot surface technology provides a better tactile feel, increased stroke friction and minimal light diffraction so that making art and taking notes on an iPad feels as natural as writing on paper. Made for the iPad and Apple Pencil, Paperlite delivers the unforgettable feeling of real paper into your digital workspace. To find out more about this wonderful creation, you can just head on over to their website by searching paperlike.com slash medtalks. And I will leave this link in the episode description so you can have a look after you've listened to the episode. And if you are interested in purchasing a Paperlike screen protector, then please do enter the code medtalks at the checkout page. And again, I will leave that all in the episode description. Okay, back to the episode. Okay, so hopefully all of the above will bring you to a cause. But all of this cannot happen straight away. The x-ray may not happen for another half an hour to an hour. The blood tests are likely to arrive in the next hour or so. In the meantime, we need to manage this patient. We've done the A2E assessment and we've made any necessary acute interventions wherever possible, such as giving the patient high flow oxygen, 
giving them fluid boluses and taking their bloods. Ideally, the patient should be on continuous monitoring, so that's monitoring their oxygen sats, their heart rate and blood pressure. Firstly, patients with DKA are going to lose a lot of intravascular fluid because they've been vomiting and they're polyuric. They're likely to be hypotensive and so aggressive fluid replacement with 0.9% saline is essential to restore blood volume, correct any electrolyte imbalances and remove those ketones. If the patient's systolic blood pressure is less than 90 millimeters mercury, then they're going to need fluid boluses of 0.9% saline 500 mils stat, but care must be taken if they're known heart failure or renal failure. This should ideally be repeated until the systolic blood pressure is above 90. So if the systolic blood pressure is above 90, then usually the protocols are as follows. The first bag of fluids will run at 1 litre of 0.9% saline over 1 hour. The second bag will be 1 litre of 0.9% saline over 2 hours. The third bag will also be over 2 hours. The fourth bag over 4 hours. The fifth bag over 4 hours. And then the sixth bag over 6 hours. Now once we've started the fluid resuscitation, we also need to correct the hyperglycemia. And the only way we can do this is giving insulin intravenously. So the recommended rate of insulin infusion is calculated at 0.1 units per kilogram of body weight per hour. And this is a fixed rate. Essentially, it means that for a 70 kilogram person, they need to be getting 7 units of insulin per hour. This will reduce blood glucose levels and suppress ketogenesis. It's really important to also continue any long-acting insulin therapy that the patient is on but their short-acting ones should be stopped. Now we're correcting the hyperglycemia with insulin, we need to make sure that we don't go the other way and bring the glucose levels too low, causing hypoglycemia. So at some point, we need to give the patient some glucose. It seems strange, doesn't it? So when the plasma glucose levels are below 12 millimoles per litre, then we need to give the patient some 5% dextrose to prevent the hypoglycemia. This should be continued until the patient is eating and drinking normally. Another issue with giving insulin is that it drives potassium into cells, therefore potentially causing low blood potassium levels or hypokalemia. To combat this, we add potassium chloride to the fluid bags in order to maintain a normal blood potassium level of between 3.5 and 5.5. If it is between those levels, then we want to maintain it there, so we give 40 millimoles of potassium chloride in each bag. If it's above 5.5, then we don't need to add any potassium chloride, and if it's below 3.5, we need senior specialist input because we may need to give more than 40 millimoles. So, for example, 60 to 80 millimoles of potassium chloride in a bag. We also need to treat the precipitating cause. So if it's an infection, then broad-spectrum antibiotics must be given until sensitivities from cultures have returned. Now, as we're giving the patient a lot of fluids we need to strictly measure their output, so they should be catheterized so that we can do hourly urine output measurements. DKA is a known hypercoagulable state, so it's imperative that the patient is on prophylactic inoxaparin for VTE prevention. Okay, so those are the main treatments for DKA. Now we need to think about the targets and how we assess the response to interventions. So the recommended targets are the following. A reduction of blood ketone concentration by 0.5 millimoles per litre per hour, an increase in the venous bicarbonate concentration by 3 millimoles per litre per hour, reduction in blood glucose levels by 3 millimoles per litre per hour, and maintaining the potassium between 4 and 5.5 millimoles per litre. 
We need to closely monitor patients with DKA to prevent fatal complications. Ideally, they should be managed in a high-dependency unit setting or if they are severely unwell, then intensive care. Venous blood gashes should be performed every 1-2 to two hours initially for the first 2-4 to four hours to check the electrolytes, the pH and the venous bicarbonate. And after this, they can be checked every 2-4 to four hours. However, this all depends on specific scenarios as sometimes if the DKA is not resolving, then even closer monitoring may be required. Fluid balance needs to be closely looked at on an hourly basis, so looking at the urine output. Capillary blood glucose should be checked every hour, with the aim, as we mentioned, to reduce it by 3 millimoles per litre per hour. And similarly, ketones should be checked every hour, with the aim to reduce it by 0.5 millimoles per litre per hour. So hopefully all of these measures that we put into place will correct the DKA and the patient will be fine. But there are warning signs that we need to be aware about, which may then require input from critical care or intensive care for further management and possible transfer. There are clinical features and biochemical features. The clinical features include hypoxia, hypotension, a reduced consciousness level, significant comorbidities such as significant comorbidities, especially cardiac and renal, and age above 65 years old. Biochemical features are pH less than 7.1, so a severe acidosis, bicarbonate levels less than 5, ketonemia, so more than 6 millimoles per litre, and potassium less than 3.5 on admission. So what can go wrong? A lot, and that's why we, it must be managed properly. Most of the complications are ones that we've already touched on so iatrogenic hypokalemia or even hyperkalemia due to either insufficient or too much replacement of potassium, and both of these can lead to potentially fatal cardiac arrhythmias. Similarly, iatrogenic hypoglycemia can occur if we don't replace the glucose properly. Venous thromboembolic events, because DKA is a hypercoagulable state, and this must be prevented with, with prophylaxis, the most severe ones to know about are acute pulmonary edema, secondary to fluid overload, and this is more likely in, in the elderly and patients with known cardiac or renal failure, but this is rarely reported. Cerebral edema is potentially the most worrying complication. It can occur because insulin drives the glucose into the cells within the brain, and therefore fluid within the blood vessels follows the glucose down an exotic gradient, causing cerebral cells to swell, and this causes the edema. This is a very rare complication, however it can be fatal. In order to prevent this, fluid replacement must not be done too quickly. Now with regards to managing DKA, do consult your local trust guidelines, which you should be able to find on your intranet. There is probably going to be a DKA management protocol which you can print out and follow. As an F1, there is no way that you're going to be managing DKA on your own. Most of the time, patients with DKA come into A&E, they're stabilised by the A&E doctors in recess, seen by the medical registrar, and then transferred to either an acute ward with the facilities and the expertise to manage DKA, or ideally to HDU or ITU. DKA is unlikely to suddenly develop on a ward, however, you can never say never, and so if you are worried that one of the patients is going into DKA, then you must escalate early once you've got confirmation with things like a blood gas, capillary blood glucose and capillary ketone level. Right guys, that brings me to the end of this episode where 
I've talked all about diabetic ketoacidosis. Now this episode was actually recorded a couple of years ago during the pandemic as part of our Junior Doctors Guide series. So if any of you listeners are finally medical students going into your FY1 year, then that's basically how you would approach a patient with DKA. But the concepts are the same for any of the clinic, any medical student. So it's still useful for all of you listeners. Now, please remember to share with your friends, peers, and anyone else who may find it useful. We look forward to bringing you a lot more content. In the next episode, we'll be talking all about type 2 diabetes mellitus, so stay tuned for that. You can message us on Instagram or email us at hellamedtalks at gmail.com if you have any questions, queries, or anything else you want to ask, or if you want to give us any feedback, that would be much appreciated. Thanks for listening. We look forward to bringing you lots more content. Goodbye.